Scripture for this morning is from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, verses 12 to 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So, I remember when I was uh, in, I guess, elementary school probably, and hearing this story read in church, this is like a Jesus I could get my arms around. This was like mad Jesus, you know, gets into the temple, kicks the tables over. I mean, this is the passion of Jesus. This wasn't like your medieval picture of, you know, Jesus kind of, you know, like just sort of, this was, you know, flesh and blood. He was, and, and somehow I, I really related to that. And then surrounding this story was probably one of those stories that I didn't get and didn't relate to. He just gets, what does he got against fig trees? It's like the poor little tree is just doing its thing and he comes and curses the thing and it dies and it just seems like we have angry Jesus. And it's like, what is, what is happening with this? What? So we've got to understand this and get a picture of this. I want to give you, a, again, I, I think my immature, not because I wasn't, you know, I was relatively mature for a, elementary schooler, but my understanding of scripture being immature, I think I thought of it like the people at the Vatican when we were, Nancy and I were there a few years ago, right outside the Vatican, they have these vendors, these street vendors, and they set up in a way that is, um, uh, they kind of open up these cardboard things and they sell purses and knockoffs of all sorts of stuff right at the sort of gates of the Vatican. And the, the guards, if you've ever been there, the guards of the Vatican don't want this. They get very mad. I think they feel it's sacred. 
Herod and there's other things. So, so they'll come out from the Vatican and they'll kind of shoo these people away. And it's amazing if you've ever seen it because you'll have 30 or 40 or 50 stretching a street right there at the plaza at St. Mark's. And the, uh, and then in a second, they'll just close up. They have these sort of boxes designed to close it up and they'll disappear into like, alleys or whatever, and the guards will, get out of here, and then Italian, I can't speak Italian, and then they'll round the corner and go, and in about 30 seconds, they're back. It's amazing. They have this thing down to a science. And I don't know if it's for show or whatever, it's probably illegal by the, the rules of it, but uh, but to me, that's sort of what it seemed like. Jesus comes in and he sees an activity that goes on in the temple all the time, changing money so people can buy the sacrifices, which, by the way, is prescribed in the law of Moses, selling doves. And they're, as far as they're concerned, they're just doing what the law says. And, and mad Jesus comes in and, rawr, rawr, and turns them all over. My question is this, do we really think that that stopped the commercial activity the next day or the next Passover from the temple? I think if we, I think we're short-sighted if somehow we think that somehow Jesus was trying to say, I'm just really ticked off. I didn't get breakfast. There were no figs on the tree and I'm just in a bad mood. But I think you can read this story like this, but let's not. Because that's not the way the scripture is written. That's not how Mark writes this and that's not what it's trying to present. Again, last Sunday was a pivotal moment in what we call Palm Sunday as Jesus takes off the veil and comes into Jerusalem as the Messiah for the first time taking off the blinders and saying, I receive your praises. Hosanna, son of David. Now he is declaring himself to actually be the Christ. And so it is in this posture that if you'll remember last week, he goes to the temple and it says he looks around and then he goes to Bethany. Now you got to get a little geography here because Mount Zion, where the the, the mountain where the temple is built upon, uh, it's also called Mount Moriah and other names, but it's Jerusalem's up on a temple. You go down into the Valley of Kidron and then up the Mount of Olives, and on the other side of the Mount of Olives, about a mile and a half away, is the little village of Bethany, probably where Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house or another friend's house that Jesus goes. They walk a mile and a half outside Jerusalem to stay the night. So he's been to the temple late after coming in in this procession. And so he comes back the next morning. And on the way, the Mount of Olives has all sorts of trees and uh, of just a place where they would uh, have olive trees and fig trees. And he comes along and, uh, and it says he was hungry. And so uh, picking up in verse 12 of, of Mark 11, on the following day, he comes from Bethany, he's hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. So I'm going to show you what he would roughly what he would have seen. This is a fig tree in leaf. It it's, would have been a little later. This is the very, very early part. We know because it's Passover that this is springtime in Jerusalem. And fig trees, unlike most trees leave fruit on over the winter. And so mostly when you have trees, the leaves come first, but the fruit isn't there yet. The fruit comes later, after the leaves. Fig trees, however, are unique in that this 
what they call the, the tarksh in, in, in Arabic, we don't really have a name for it, is the early fruit. And then that leaf is coming out, and pretty soon, within a few weeks, the leaf is going to cover that fruit, but that you can assume in a healthy tree that there would be this winter fruit, this tarksh. It's not the, the kind of fig that you would want to sell in a market. It's not the sweet summer fruit. That's coming later. But this is edible, and it certainly was something that peasants would get. Nobody would sell it or or harvest it, but that it was right to expect on a healthy tree that there would be something to eat. It's not like Jesus. I know he's not a botanist by profession, but he's also not stupid. Okay, He's not going to a tree out of season and not knowing what he's looking for. He knows that if a tree, a healthy tree, is bearing fruit... Okay, and is bearing leaves that way, there is going to be the tarsh on the tree. Okay, so he goes, but there isn't. So he knows that it's not a healthy tree. It's not a tree that, uh, the way figs go is that, and, and again, it's interesting how much if you look up, I'll challenge you to look up any, everything about figs in the Bible. There's lots and lots of references to fig trees, but Fig tree's got to be at least three years old before it bears fruit. And Luke 13 actually talks about this, about trying to bear fruit in year one, two, and three. And in the parable then, he says, give me a little time. We're not mature enough. This was clearly a mature tree that should have been bearing fruit, but was in some way rotten, was in some way not right. Now, Jesus is acting in this way as a prophet, and prophets often did things to paint stories. If you read Jeremiah or Ezekiel or others, they did things that don't seem to make a lot of sense, but they were trying to paint a picture because the job of a prophet is to get people to understand the word of the Lord, what God is saying. And Jesus here is acting in a prophetic ministry. And so we have this story of the fig tree, which reads to our mind, it's kind of strange, mad Jesus yelling at the tree as capsuling this picture in the temple. And it's all of one piece. And it's Jesus the prophet trying to reiterate what's coming and is going to happen here in this Passion Week. So he goes and he looks at the fig tree and there's nothing but leaves. It had all the exterior show you would want for a tree. The leaves were there. But The Bible says you don't know a tree by its leaves, right? You know a tree by its fruit, right? Now, a botanist can identify it by its leaves, but it doesn't do you much good if you're hungry. You know a tree by its fruit. And so uh, Jesus then leaves the tree and curses it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, and they were probably thinking, ooh, mad Jesus too. But now he walks in to the temple. And when you look, when you look at the temple, now the temple, remember, we, we might get a sense of we're walking like right into the Holy of Holies. Nobody goes into the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God dwells. That's not the way the temple was set up. Only the high priest once a year would go in there. But the temple was set up with many rings and layers of separate. There was a place where women could go, but remember, this was a male-dominated, and also Jewish males. So you'd have a court of the Gentiles, a place where there would be sort of a plaza where non-Jews could go, because Jerusalem was a multicultural city. But it was a place of great separation. And depending, if you were a Levitical priest, you could go certain places. And if you were a woman, you could go certain places. And if you were a non-Jew, you could go certain places. And I think when Jesus looks over this, he not only sees 
the commercial activity going on. And I think sometimes we can read it and think, man, they must have been charging interest, like terrible interest, or those doves, they shouldn't have been charging as much for the doves or whatever. I think we're missing the point here. I think Jesus looks over this situation that is happening, that has been happening for centuries by this point. The temple was the economic lifeblood for Levites and for uh, the commercial activity. It was a happening place, except something wasn't happening. The kingdom of God was not being built there. And Messiah was not even being recognized there. So here, the one who is the center of the temple himself isn't even acknowledged as he walks in to this place. So let's look as Jesus walks into the temple, if you've got your Bible. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, he enters the temple, and he begins to drive out, look at this carefully with me, those who sold and those who bought. You ever seen that? Sometimes I think we think the money changers get the rap here, right? We think they turned over the temples. You realize Jesus came and those who were buying things, which by the way was a law of Moses thing where you were to offer a sacrifice. If you were poor, you'd offer a dove. If you were more wealthy, you'd offer something else. This whole sacrificial system is going on. But Jesus says he drove away those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What's that about? Well, likely there's vessels that, you know, the Mosaic law says it has to be certain, the vessels have to be purified in a certain way. And they were doing it according to what they thought was the right thing to do. And Jesus says, stop! Stop this! Can I offer to you, I don't think he knew he wasn't going to stop all the commercial activity forever from that day forward in the temple any more than the Guardia in Italy were going to stop in the Vatican, the vendors. But you understand, the one on whom the temple is based, the light in the center of the temple was now in the temple. Do you remember we talked last week about the book of Malachi, the, the, the light the Lord Himself suddenly, it says, comes into the temple to do what? To render judgment. And here He is, and He looks around, and all the activity is going on. All the, the leaves look pretty good. The Mosaic Law being followed. But there's no fruit. There's no fruit. They are oppressing the poor There isn't prayer going forth out of hearts that cry to God for mercy and justice. They are separating out that which the Messiah wants to bring together. Jesus quotes two verses here from the Old Testament very, very significantly. Verse 17, did you catch this as he's going through? We think mad Jesus is going through the temple. Verse 17 He wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and He was teaching them. Did you catch that? Do do you think of Jesus and the money changers pouring, you know, just, I would take this, but, you know, do you think that looks like a teaching? Probably a teaching you'd remember. You went to a church where somebody was throwing things around. 
Jesus, it says, He's teaching them. And He quotes from Isaiah 56, and He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Isaiah 56 is about what happens when Messiah comes. And it is a whole chapter about how salvation is for all, for foreigners, for eunuchs, for those who are outside and outcasts. Look at this in verse verse 6 of of, uh, Isaiah 56. The foreigners will join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord. And I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, these are non-Jews, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And he looks out at this segregated, separated, commercially driven, fruit, uh, fruitless but leaf-filled temple, and he says, no, enough. We're destroying this. And then he quotes from Jeremiah verse chapter 7. You've made it a den of robbers. I won't read the whole thing, but if you read Jeremiah chapter 7, where this comes from, verses 1 through 11, it's all about standing in this very place. Now, it wasn't this temple because Herod's temple was rebuilt after a destruction, but this is the temple itself. And Jeremiah says, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord right here in the temple. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Don't trust deceptive words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You can say all you want. Oh, I got all the leaves, man. I got all the creds to do the religious thing. And Jesus says, I'm not tweaking your religious thing. I'm not turning over a table. I'm destroying this temple. This temple that He goes into, He says, in a little while, not one stone will be laid on another. This temple will be destroyed. And he's also referring to his own body, which would be destroyed completely because ultimately everything in Scripture is a shadow and points to the ultimate reality of one who became the sacrifice for us because it's not the religious show that was ultimately of concern to Christ. His prime target was this veil that lay between all people and the Holy of Holies. Because that is where the presence of God dwelt. And it was blocked off so that men and women and Gentiles and Jews couldn't get to God. And he said, I'm not going to tweak that veil any more than I'm going to tweak the money changers and their habits. I'm destroying the whole thing. I, he always intended to. Because once sin entered the world, the block between God and man was complete. And Jesus Christ walks into the temple and He looks around and He says, enough. And as a prophet, He demonstrates it and He said, let me show you what's going to happen. I'm going to upend life. And He throws the temples. 
And believe me, for those who hear, who have ears to hear, He will upend your life. He's not there to tweak your life. He's not there to just make things a little different and make your, your bad days a little better. He's there to upend you and completely wreck you and ruin you for anything that would be normal as this world goes. This is going to begin a series of conflicts that we'll begin to look at next week because when you begin to upend a system that is both economically driven and power driven, you are going to make some powerful enemies. I'll say that in sort of a a light of what's coming is that don't think for a minute that there will not be opposition to your submitting your life to Christ and allowing Him to upend the money changers' temples in your heart. You will come under the same kind of scrutiny and the same kind of opposition. So let's not play games about that. He's going to incur these enemies because He's gone right to the heart of what man's deepest need is, which is to have no blockade between us and the God who created us. And this is what's going to happen in about four more days as He goes to the cross. So they go home, they finish this day in verse 19. We see that they went back to Bethany and out of the city. The next day they came back to Jerusalem. And in verse 20 it says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This is the only miracle of destruction. Every miracle Jesus does is one of healing, of restoration, of bringing things right that were wrong, of freeing demoniacs, of healing people. This is a miracle of destruction. But it is a miracle to point to. He's not mad at the fig tree. He's using it as a prophetic testimony of what's about to happen, not simply in the temple, not simply to the Pharisees, but to all who think that the outer show and the leaves themselves is what He calls us to. He calls us to bear fruit for Him, to actually have the Spirit of God living inside of us. Peter to whom we, we think Mark is, is closely related in these stories, so we have Peter's recollection here of that day. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Let me just finish by these last three verses. This seems to me like a complete non sequitur. If, if I were Jesus, if I, you know, because I, I know better, so I would say to him, um, the fig tree you have cursed has withered. And I would say, well, Peter... The reason the fig tree's cursed is withered is because I was demonstrating to you and sort of, you know, there's an explanation of what he does. Jesus doesn't really, he doesn't care to explain what he did and why. He goes again to the heart of the matter. Look at the kind of things Jesus says. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. That verse, you know, that's, that's a coffee cup kind of verse, or that's the kind of verse you can take totally out of context. Look at the context of this, right? It seems like this carte blanche to have anything we want. Anyone who just doesn't doubt says, you know, boy, I can even move a mountain. What mountain was he on? Who's on Mount Zion? We read in Psalm 84 today, how lovely is your dwelling place, O God. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house. I'd rather experience the presence of God. David singing 
the praises of God on this side of the mountain. And he says, what has this mountain become but a place that excludes the Messiah Himself that won't even recognize the heart of that mountain? I think, and I can't say for sure this is right, but I think Jesus is referring to the mountain He's on right then. You can say to this mountain and all that it is, cast into the sea, and whoever doesn't doubt in his heart but believes... It will be done for him. I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. This new kingdom that's coming isn't going to be based on sacrifice of animals. It's not going to be based on on exchange of on vessels and this outer thing. He says it's going to be based on faith that overcomes insurmountable odds. It's going to be based on a sustenance by my grace, marked by undeserved forgiveness. Look at this last line. He says... Whatever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I think he's pointing to the new kingdom that's coming and what will mark it versus what he's walked into in this old kingdom. question for us as we close is, I guess, do we, if we, do we think we live in a, in a kingdom where we can buy doves, where we can bear leaves, where we can look good on the outside? If so, Jesus is coming to turn over the temple. He's, I mean, the tables. He's coming to, to kick them over and to say there's a Messiah that's walking into the temple now who's going to return us to what was always intended that by faith alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone, we have access to God the Father. And in just a few short days, the whole system is going to be destroyed in terms of heaven's perspective. And for us today, coming from a, most of us from a non-Jewish perspective, looking at this, it can seem very strange, but what underpins it is still in existence, which is the desire to reach God on our own, to buy enough sacrifice to please Him. You don't have to do anything to please God except trust in Jesus Christ because He has fulfilled it and done it all. You need do nothing more than believe in the One who died for you. Let's pray together. Lord, shed light for us. And Lord, I I don't claim to have the perfect interpretation of this passage, but... Lord, I ask that as I've spoken this morning and offered this way of looking at this, I ask You to to confirm in the hearts of those if if I've spoken words, Lord, that that are not of You, I ask that they would just fall on deaf ears. Lord, Lord, I ask though that You would quicken to our hearts the eternal truth buried in every story of the Gospel. That Jesus Christ, the perfect man, perfect God, came and fulfilled all righteousness and did everything necessary for us to be with You. Lord, I thank You that You were a man of passion, that You were a man who saw injustice Lord, I thank You that You were one who did everything possible to point the way. 
Lord, for those of us who live in a state of, of doubt or, or this is just too incredible to believe, I ask You by Your Holy Spirit to draw each of us to Jesus. To draw us to the fact that we're loved by an eternal God. Come and speak to us, Lord. I'm just going to give us a minute to just pray silently to hear the voice of the Lord. If He would deign to speak something to your heart, just be open to Him before we close.